If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to uh, the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth chapter 1. If you need a Bible, uh, there's uh, an usher in the back, probably actually uh, Johnny, if there's uh, anybody with their hand up. Need a Bible, go ahead and open to the book of Ruth. Ruth is the eighth book of your Bible. If you go from the uh, Old Testament, the first half of the book will come right up to you. And uh, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, eighth book of the Bible. We're starting this new series uh, called Redeeming Ruth, and we're going to be able to take uh, a, a good study at the book of Ruth over the next seven weeks. And uh, Ruth is a, is a short book. It's only four chapters. Right up here, Johnny. Um, it's only four chapters. And so I would encourage you this week, find some leisure time and just sit down and just read through this book. I mean, it'll take you 25 minutes if you read slow like me and uh, take some time, read through it. Uh, read through it a couple times over the series. Uh, I promise you it'll be a, a good book, a good read. The thing I love about the book of Ruth is you know, there are some books of the Bible uh, that have you know, deep theological reasoning all throughout the entire book. So you look at the book of Romans, and that's just a, a deep theological book. And, and Ruth is not like that. It's not a deep theological book, although it does teach, uh, it is full of theology. You look at the, the, the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, it details all the, the stories and, and, and the life and ministry of Jesus. And Ruth doesn't necessarily cover the life and ministry of, of, of Jesus, but it still points to the coming Jesus. The book of Ruth, it doesn't have that vivid uh, apocalyptic imagery like you would find in the book of Revelation. Yet it still details God's working through the unfolding events of history here in the book of Ruth. This, the, the book of Ruth doesn't have these, 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 these wonderful uh, basic instructions on how we live according to God's standards like the Sermon on the Mount. However, the book of Ruth has lessons on how we are to live within the kingdom of God. The truth about Ruth, you might hear us say that a few times, it's just fun to say it. The truth about Ruth is that Ruth doesn't give us direct instruction on how we're supposed to live as Christians. Rather, Ruth is going to teach us truth through a story that is woven through the main characters throughout this book. And we're going to learn things and thing after thing through this book. A couple of things that you might find throughout this book. These are things that you'll see and learn from this book. We'll, we'll learn about the sovereignty of God in our lives. The sovereignty of God says that God is in control of all things. That God is in control of circumstances and all things in our life. And how God works through all those things to bring good in our life. We'll see that theme throughout this book. We'll see the theme. Uh, there's, a, there's a great little love story in this book. A little, a little romance that starts and turns into a marriage, and turns into a family. And, and, and that's a great thing for us to read. And, and the, probably the most important theme, though, throughout this book is going to be the theme of redemption. We're going to see this idea of redemption time and time and time again. This is going to be the redemption of an individual. It'll be redemption of a family. And ultimately, it'll be redemption offered to all of us through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So, we're calling this series Redeeming Ruth, and we really want, really want to see, God, how do you redeem our lives? How do you redeem the lives of us right here and the lives of, our, uh, of the people around us? How do you do your redeeming work? So today, we're going to be in, in, in Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to deal with kind of this idea of hardship and, and, and struggle. And it made me really think about, like, we don't talk about hardships very often. Like, we don't talk about our, our own struggles. Like, like, I think about, like, my struggles growing up. I don't talk about these very often. I, I think I've talked once or twice at church. 
um, about my background, about the things I went through as a, as a child. I went through as a child, I have two sisters that were just a couple years older than I was, and we were born into a, a drug family, and uh, parents were, were into drugs and this sort of thing, and um, when I was six months old, my dad was, was high on something rather, and uh, went out driving in a car, and he plowed his car into, some, into another vehicle, killed five people in the car. So dad goes off to prison, and uh, my, my biological mom, she decided she couldn't handle us kids, and so she put us up for adoption. And we went and became wards of the state and uh, went through the foster system and were, were adopted by, by a family. And uh, this family is what I know to be my mom and dad. And this is people I love. And, 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 then, and then when I was nine years old, my dad and I were, were watching The Price is Right. It was a Monday morning, right before school started, watching The Price is Right. And dad had a heart attack in, in the chair. And, and, and dad died right there in front of me. And I think about these things, I think about these two circumstances and these hardships that were a part of my life. I mean, these things should have wrecked me. These things should have ruined me. I mean, the reality of, of, of the hardship we face in our lives. And the question becomes, how do we deal with, with hardship? How do we deal with the hardship that comes into our lives? And I think about, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about the hard things that are in front of you, the hard things you've been through, the hard things you're dealing with right now. Might be that death in the family, that death of somebody that was very close to you, that means a ton to you. Might be, might be, might be divorce. Might be you've been through a divorce. Might be your parents have gone through a divorce. Maybe it's, maybe it's bankruptcy. Maybe, maybe it's a, it was a diagnosis from the doctor. It's cancer. It's terminal. It's this. It's that. Maybe it's a relationship with somebody that is coming to an end, someone that you loved, and that relationship can no longer be intact. And these, these are hard things. And often, when we go through these hardships and we go through the suffering, it leads us to, to losing hope, losing hope and joy in life. And the question is, how, how do we deal with that hardship? How do we deal with, with the hardship that happens in life? Because reality is, hardship does happen. This life is, is full of hardship. Listen, if you're in one of those situations where you don't have any hardship in your life right now, then praise God. Praise God. Enjoy that season because I tell you what, they're going to come. Because that's just what happens in life. That just happens in life. And if if you're looking at your life and saying, man, man, I, I don't have any of this hardship. But listen, you know people who do. You know people who are going through these very same things. And listen, this is why we need this message to know how we handle hardship. Because either we need to learn how to handle it ourselves, or we need to look at the people around us who are going through and struggling and suffering. We need to be able to say, hey, let me give you some hope. Let me tell you that there is hope in your situation. So in Ruth chapter 1, we're going to be introduced to a, a few of our main characters. We're going to be introduced to um, a woman by the name of Naomi. And another woman by the name of Ruth. And uh, specifically with Naomi, we're going to see the hardships that come her way. The hardships she's dealt with life and how she begins to deal with those. So before we start, let's go ahead and uh, would you just join me in prayer? God, thankful for the opportunity to open up your word, God. Uh, Thankful that uh, uh, we're Bible people here. That God, we don't really care about a pastor's opinion about the best way to live or, 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 or whatever that is. God, we want your word to speak to us. And so, God, I pray that you would help us learn the truth in Ruth. God, that you would help us to understand what it is you want us to learn about, about redemption. And today, specifically about redeeming our hardships. God, I pray that you would speak to us. God, I pray that you would comfort us. I pray that your hand would be on us. 
But God, you know the weights that we carry. You know the things that are going on in our lives. And that, that God, you brought us here today for a specific reason. So God, I pray that you would help us to listen and to be open to what it is you want to teach us today, Jesus. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Verse 1 is really going to set the, the background for the story. And here's what verse 1 says. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, this sets the, the story in a context, in a historical context. In the days that the judges ruled, this was, uh, in the history of Israel, this was about a 200 to 300 year piece of history. Uh, around the years 1250 to 1050 BC before Christ. And this was, this was one of the, the, the roughest patches of history for all of Israel. This, 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 this time of, of history could be summarized uh, by Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse of the book of Judges. It says this, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in his own eyes. This was a summary of one of the most dark and one of the most wicked, one of the most rebellious and unfortunate periods in the history of Israel as a nation. The, the Israelites, they knew what they were supposed to do. They, they, they knew they were supposed to follow after God, but because there was no leader, there was no vision, there was no, there was no purpose. And what happens is when we're left to our own uh, desires... They, as well as us, we can be pretty morally bankrupt people. And we, we, we end up pursuing our own selves. We pursue trying to please ourselves, trying to satisfy ourselves. And we make ourselves numero uno. And it leads to this period of history that's known as the Judges that was full of destruction, that was full of, of, of sin and rebellion. And just, it was, it was the darkest time of their history. So this is, this is the, 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 the background of what's happening in, in Israel for the nation. It's the darkest period of their history. And it says, in those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, the text doesn't implicitly say the famine was a judgment because of God. But typically, as you read the Bible, when you see that there's a famine, just about all the times you see that there's a famine, the famine is coming as judgment from God. God is saying, hey, you have forgotten me. You have forsaken me. You haven't followed after me. And because you haven't followed after me and sought me, I'm going to stop feeding you. I'm going to stop sending the rain so that way your crops wither and die. And this is just one of the ways that God extends his, his judgment to call people back to him. As he sends famine onto the land as a way to say, hey, come back to me. Come back to me. Come back and, and, and come back into a relationship with me. And so... There's a famine in the land. That means there's no crops. That means there's no food. That means jobs are scarce. And you can kind of get the, the, the background of where the story is taking place. It says, in those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah, we can learn in a few minutes, his name is, uh, his name is uh, Elimelech. And it's interesting because when we think about the word Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem, it means house of bread. But there's a famine. There's no bread in the house of bread. You see the little play on words. We'll see that all throughout this book of Ruth. It says, the man of, of Bethlehem and Judah, he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. So they're from Bethlehem and they decide to go to Moab. Moab is about 50 miles away from Bethlehem. And it's kind of interesting. If you think about there being a famine in Bethlehem, don't you think the famine would extend down to Moab as well? Like, like, like if, if Yakima is dealing with a shortage of water, don't you think Sunnyside would be dealing with the same kind of thing? But 
Again, God's hand is on this. And so Moab, 50 miles away, their crops are growing and they've got plenty of food and plenty of jobs. And so Moab, excuse me, Elimelech, he does what many guys would do, what many of us would do. He doesn't want to deal with the underlying spiritual issue. He doesn't want to deal with the sin and the rebellion. So he decides, I'm going to go down to Moab. I'm going to go down to Moab where things are just a little bit easier. Things are a little bit better. That doesn't sound like that bad of an idea. It's kind of like, well, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, if, if things are hard in your land, go, go to a better place. But, but listen, Moab was no place for God's people to dwell. The, the, the people of Moab, they were the product of an incestuous relationship between a guy by the name of Lot and his daughter. That's where the people came from. And they're known, the, the people of Moab, they're known for being uh, sexually uh, perversion and having all these sexual perversions amongst their people. These, these people in Moab, they didn't worship the one true God. They didn't know who God was. They were non-believers. They worshiped a pagan God by the name of Chemosh. And listen, God's people were not supposed to move and not supposed to dwell in places where God didn't reign. And so this is, this is a little bit, this is like, 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 well, it makes sense. No, it doesn't make sense. This is, the, this is Elimelech saying, I'm going to turn my back on God. I'm going to do things my own way. I'm not going to do things God's way. I understand, you know, I don't like the way that God does it. So I'm going to go and do things my own way. This is playing with fire. He moves his family away from God. He moves his family away from God's people to a place where they're probably the only Christians around in Moab. So that, that is the stage of where the story takes place. You've got, you've got the darkest time in Israel's history. You've got a famine over the land of God's judgment, God trying to call people back into a relationship with him. And then you've got Elimelech deciding, I'm going to turn away from God and the things I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to take what I think is going to be the easy route. And here's what happens. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chelon. And they were Epaphrodites from, the Beth, from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Verse 3 says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, what does that say he did? He died. He died. And she was left with her two sons. Now, remember, why did Elimelech leave Bethlehem? Because he wanted to live, right? He wanted, there was a famine in the land. He had to feed his family. He left, he left Bethlehem to go to Moab to live. And what happened when he got there? He died. Like, 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 like Elimelech, that's not what you went to do. Like, like, how does this play out? We're not sure how he dies, but, but he dies. And you can imagine Naomi. You got to put yourself in Naomi's shoes. I mean, here's your husband that you love you follow. He's, he's led you to Moab and you're following him and you say, man, I love you. I'm, I'm behind you. And then all of a sudden he up and dies. Think about the heartache that that would deal. Think about how that would affect her. And all she has left, I, I mean, she had all these dreams for her husband. She had all these dreams that he was going to go to Moab and, and be successful and provide for the family and, and provide for her when she was old and, and all these great things and, and have the little, little cottage that they could re- grow old in and grow old together. You know, really take a wonderful story. But he dies. And she's left with just her two sons. 
Now that's good she's got her sons because there's a little bit of hope in her two sons. Like she could hope, hey, my sons are going to be able to take care of me when I'm old. They take care of mom, right? I've taught them to take care of me. And so, verse 4 says, these, the two sons, they took Moabite wives. This was not a good decision at all. And the name of one of the wives was Oprah. It's actually Orpah, but it's easier to say Oprah. And the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilon, what did they do? They died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her daughter. <laughs> Remember, why did Elimelech move his family to Moab? To live. And what happened? They died. And you see, you see this, this story playing out. And the daughters, the daughter-in-laws, you know, his, his son married these two Moabite wives. The story implies they don't have any kids. They didn't have any grandkids. There's no grandkids for Naomi. And so you can just put yourself in Naomi's shoes. Put yourself in her shoes. Your husband, dead. Your two sons, dead. I don't think there's anything that could be more bleak or, or, or dark or hopeless for her than this happening right here. This is the, the darkest stage of Israel's history. And this is the worst possible thing that could happen in her life. I always talk about my five kids. You know I've got five kids. Uh, yes, we know what causes that. Should just say that. Yes, okay. Uh, but I can think of nothing more painful to me. I mean, for example, this past week, this past week, my, my, my daughter broke her arm. Okay? She broke her arm pretty bad. She had to have surgery. All right. And the surgery was supposed to take an hour. And so, you know, we're, we're there with our daughter and they wheel her off. The nurses wheel her off. And we're like, ah, we can't go with her. We, you know, it's kind of, you know, one of those things. They wheel her off and they're like, it's going to be an hour. And so my wife and I are waiting in the, in the waiting room and everybody else is left. It's just us. And an hour ticks by, hour and a half ticks by, two hours ticks by. And we're kind of stressing out. Like, this is stressful. This is my girl in surgery. And it's, you know, not supposed to be a routine surgery. Not a big deal. It ended up being fine. They started a little bit late. It went a little bit long. No big deal. Uh, she's here today. She's bouncing off the walls. She's hunky-dory. She's not supposed to be bouncing off the walls. So if you see her bouncing off the walls, tell her not to. Okay? But I think about being a dad. And I think about just seeing my daughter go through that. But there'd be nothing worse as a dad than have to bury all of my kids. To have to, to bury my kids into the ground. I can't imagine the pain that that would cause. And you put yourself in Naomi's shoes. She's put her two sons, her only sons, her only kids into the ground. And she's put her husband into the ground. I mean, we think that we experience hardship and, and, and brokenness. Naomi, Naomi, she knew hardship more than any of us would ever experience. Her family at this point in time has literally come to an end. There's no heir. There's no, there's no anyone to carry on that family name. And here she is. She's left in Moab. This is a foreign place to her. She's got no church. She's got no family. She's got no Christian friends that she can call and say, hey, I'm going through a hard time. Would you pray for me? Would you encourage me? Would you walk through life with me? Because I'm struggling. There's no one she can call. There's no other Christians around. There's no church that she can lean on. So she is left broke, alone, and hopeless. And this is just a picture of devastation, of desolation, of, of absolute desperation. The question is, how do we handle 
hardship when it comes to our lives. I mean, I mean, how do you do this? When you've got those hardships that come into your life, you've got those circumstances, you've got the relational struggle, you've got the financial struggle, you've got, you've got physical problems, how do you handle it? You know, some people, some people, they just turn to alcohol. It's an easy way to do it. You know, I'm just, just going to join a, join a small group with Jack Daniels and Jim Bean and Nelson Chardonnay and Captain Morgan. And that's my little small group. And we get together and try and make things better. And it doesn't really make things better, but that's what we turn to to deal with the hardships. Some people, they just become angry. They just become a mean person. They become abusive to everybody around them. Abusive to their family. Abusive to, to everybody that you see. Some people, when they're going through the hardships, they just give up. They just say, man, this is too hard. I quit. Man, this relational struggle, this, the, these struggles in my relationships, these are too hard for me. So I'm just going to quit. I'm just going to walk out. No more relationship. My job becomes difficult. Man, I don't like the difficulty in my job, so I'm just going to walk out and quit. Who cares? I quit. Cut themselves off from, from everything that is good. And they just, they just give up. But you know what all of us do when we start dealing with hardship and we start suffering? We all ask that question. Why? Why? Why, God? Why, why, why do I have to go through this, God? Why, why do I have to have all this stuff in my life? Why do I have these chronic health problems, God? Why, why did the cancer come back, God? Why did this person, why won't they talk to me anymore, God? Why, why can't I be in relationship with them? God, why? And in our story today, like, why, why did all these things happen to Naomi? Like, 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 why did... Why did her husband die? And then why did her, her kids die? And why doesn't she have any grandkids? And, and why is she in this place all by her own, by herself? You begin to wonder, man, is this God's curse? Is this God's curse on Naomi? Like God, like God withheld food and he withheld grandkids and he caused death to come onto Naomi's life as a sign that he wants to bring displeasure into her life. Is this the idea that if you leave God, then God's going to judge you and God's going to cause you to suffer? Why did God allow these things to happen to Naomi? Maybe, maybe it's just that God, maybe God isn't all that good. Maybe God isn't all that powerful like we want to think he is. Or maybe it's that maybe God just doesn't exist at all. And so we start going through suffering, we start going through hardships, and these are the things we begin to think about. Why, God? God, why? God, where are you? God, are you even real? See, we've got to remember this book is all about redemption. It's all about redemption. And this suffering, when we're going through suffering and we have these hardships, that's just one little piece of the puzzle. That's all we see. When we're going through those hardships, all we can look at is that little thing right in front of us. And if we could just stand back and see the whole puzzle, we would see that God has a plan. God has a purpose. God is working all things out for our good. There's two things that we have to understand and know to be true about God. The first is that God is sovereign. That means that God is, is involved in the very details of our lives. God is orchestrating things for his purposes in our lives. And the second thing we have to understand about God is that he is good. He is always good. 
And so when we start dealing with hardship, we've got to have the proper vision. Like, like you've got to go and got to get your vision checked. Like, I had to get my vision checked, and, and I had to start wearing these glasses because I can't see stuff at a distance. And it's really scary when you're driving. You can't read the signs and those sorts of things. And so, good vision is twenty twenty. But listen, for us to understand hardship, for us to understand suffering, we have to have 50-20 vision. 50-20 vision. You say, well, where does that come from? 50-20 vision comes from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And this is a culmination, Genesis 50. This is a culmination of a powerful story that shows that God is sovereign, that God is good, that God is working things in our lives, even suffering, even hardship, for his redemptive good, for his redemptive purposes in our lives. See, the story in Genesis talks about Joseph. Joseph was a favorite son. He had, he had 11 brothers. He was a favorite son, and his dad gave him the coat of many colors, and we know that story. And then his brothers did something horrific to him. They did something evil to him, and they decided, hey, we're going to kill him. And they threw him into a pit so that he would have to stay there and die. And while he's in there, some, some merchants come by, and they get a better idea. Hey, how about we sell our brother to these foreign merchants as a slave? That's a great idea. Make some money off of him, and we'll never see him again, and he'll be out of the picture. So Joseph is sold as a slave and spent years working as a slave. While he's a slave, there's some false accusations that are made against him. You did this and you shouldn't have. And, and no, I didn't. Well, I said you did. And so Joseph is then thrown into prison. And not just for a couple months to sort things out. He's in prison for years. And you look at Joseph's situation. Joseph has done nothing wrong. Yet all this hardship and all this suffering has come upon him. You'd think, man, if anybody's going to be angry at God, it's going to be Joseph, right? If anybody has a reason to turn their back on God, it's going to be Joseph because God has dealt him the wrong deck of cards. God has been so cruel and mean to him. But listen, while Joseph's in prison, he has the opportunity to interpret the, 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 the dream of the Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, here's what's going to happen. And Pharaoh says, wow, you're so wise. You come up now and be my second in command over all of Egypt. You're the second of command. You're the vice president over the entire nation of Egypt. Many years later, Joseph looks back at this time, looks back at these hardships. And he tells his brothers this. He says in Genesis 50, 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me. It was wicked. It was wrong. And you meant this evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about to bring it about that many people should be saved as they are today. This is Genesis 50, 20 vision. This means that God is bigger than sin. God is bigger than evil. God is bigger than we are. God is bigger than Satan. God is bigger than demons. God is bigger than suffering and hardship. And so we look at our lives and we have to remember that Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. This means that when we're in those times of famine and in those hardship and, and we get that cancer diagnosis and we have those, those broken relationships, that God is big enough to work all those things out for his good and for our good. And that's exactly what God does. He works all things out for good. 
God doesn't waste a single tear. God doesn't waste one amount of suffering. God doesn't waste one hardship because God is not just sovereign. He's also good. And he has a purpose behind everything we go through. So when we're enduring hardship, we've got to have that 50-20 vision to remember that God is working in our lives to bring about redemption. Redemption in our own lives, redemption in other people. God is at work. Practically speaking, here's what Naomi does next. Verse 6. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So the famine's over. She's heard. The famine is over. There's, there's food again in, 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 in Bethlehem, in Israel. Verse 7 says, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they returned to the land of Judah. When she hears that the famine is over, she makes a, a very important decision. She looks around at her life. She looks around at those hardships. She decides it's time. I'm going to leave Bethlehem. I'm going to leave this area. And I'm going to return to the people of God. I'm going to return to to Bethlehem. I'm going to return to God himself. And this is the principle. Here's the summary of the entire message today. When, When life hits you the hardest, the road to redemption starts with returning to God. When life hits you the hardest, the road to redemption starts with turning to God. See, this verse, this word return that you see in verse 6 and 7, you see this word return, it comes from the Hebrew uh, verb that means uh, shub. And this shub, you see it ten times in this chapter, ten times, return, return, return. And this word, it's the Old Testament's main word uh, to That means that we're coming back. We're returning to God's covenant grace and mercy for repentance and conversion. It doesn't just mean that we we go to a place. It recognizes something happening inside the heart. It's saying, I've been going this way. I've been doing my own thing. But now I'm going to return to God. I'm going to come back to the people of God, to the place that I should be. (coughs) And this is a powerful example that we see from Naomi. This isn't her quitting. This isn't her saying, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm quitting. She just knows she isn't where she belongs. She says, I need to be where I belong. She belongs with God. She belongs with God's people. And she makes the decision to leave these things behind, to return to God. Question I feel like we have to ask is what is it that you need to leave behind? What are those things in your life that you need to leave behind in Moab so you can turn back to God? What is that relationship that is distracting you from where you're supposed to be that you need to break off that relationship? What is that habit that you need to kill because it's distracting you from where you're supposed to be? What is, what is that memory that you need to turn from and put behind you and say, I'm not going to remember this anymore. This isn't going to haunt me anymore. It's in the past because I'm going to now turn back to God because I know that God has a plan for my life. Listen, maybe it's not you, but you're looking around the people that, 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 that God has put in your circle. And you can look and say, man, you need to leave those things there and come back to God. 
Because these things are going to destroy you. These things are going to bring you to the point of hopelessness. We've got to be willing to leave some things behind and turn back to God. Verses 8 through 18, they detail how Naomi is trying to get her daughter-in-laws, hey, you don't have to come back to me. You can go back to your homes. You can restart your lives. You can find a new husband. We'll deal with that story next week. So uh, don't worry, we're, we're not going to skip it all together. But the summary of that is, is, is Oprah, she decides to go back to her home and start her life over. And Ruth, she agrees to go back to Bethlehem with Naomi. And here's where it picks up in verse 19. It says, so the two of them, this is Ruth and Naomi, they went on until they came to Bethlehem. And they came to Bethlehem, and the whole town was stirred because of them. The women said, is this Naomi? You can picture them arriving back in a town, and everybody's looking on, everybody's saying, is this the Naomi we used to know? And everybody's on Facebook, is she back? Is, is she here? Is this the same lady? They're saying, where have you been? Catch us up. What's happened in your life? We've missed you. You know, fill us in. Tell us what's going on. And here's what Naomi says, verse 20. She said, that, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. That, that, the name Naomi means, means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. This means bitter. Don't call me pleasant lady. Call me bitter old lady. He says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? She said, man, I went away full. I went away with a a husband and kids and a song in my heart and dreams and expectations, and now I'm coming back, and all those things are gone. I'm coming back empty. Don't call me pleasant because I'm a bitter old woman now. That's what she is. Anybody know a bitter old woman? They're really fun to be around, aren't they? Okay. And she says, I'm I'm a bitter old woman. Listen, what's your first reaction to Naomi? Like when she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Like what's your first reaction? Because normally we look at Naomi and say, man, you shouldn't be bitter. You shouldn't be bitter. That's my first reaction. Is you shouldn't be bitter. That's, that's wrong. Bitter is bad. Naomi, you're bitter. So that's bad, Naomi. Don't do that. But listen, the more I think about it, the more refreshing I find Naomi to be. Because if we're going to be honest, I mean, if you're going to be honest with me, and if I'm going to be honest with you, I mean, I don't care what your theology is. I don't care how much you love God. There's going to be some point in your life when you are not happy with God because he didn't do what you thought he was going to do. Because he didn't do what you asked him to do. There's going to be a point when we become unhappy with God because things don't work out the way that we expect them to. This is just us being honest. I'm not saying you're not spiritual. I'm not saying you don't love God. I'm saying this is just honesty. There comes a point in our lives. Some of you are in that point now. God, I'm bitter. I'm frustrated because you aren't doing what I wanted you to do. Come on, God. See, the difference between Naomi and us is Naomi is honest. I mean, we walk into church and somebody says, how are you doing? And you say, you know, I'm fine. Really, I'm fine. Really, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You're like, really? Are you really good? And if you're honest, you're like, no, actually, I hate life right now. 
Like I'm, I'm so, I'm so peoed at God. Like my relationships are falling apart. You know, I can't pay my bills and, and things are falling apart all around me. But, you know, I'm walking into church and I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. Yeah, I'm good. I'm here to worship. I'm good. And here's Naomi. Naomi, how you doing? <laughs> She's like, it's horrible. She's like, my life sucks. <laughs> and God's not doing what I think he should be doing. And there's just that raw, open honesty from Naomi. And listen, when I see Naomi being honest like this, I, when I see her saying, I'm bitter, I see this as being her like, like public declaration that she's inviting people into help. She's saying, you know what? I'm broken. I'm struggling. Life is hard and I need some help. You see, if, if we were to look at Naomi and if she was, if she was in the middle of the forest, all by yourself. Man, I'm bitter. I'm angry. We say that lacks faith. That's not a person of God. But where is she? Remember where she's at? She's in Bethlehem. She's with the people of God. She has returned to God. So this is her saying, my life is falling apart, but I'm showing up to church on Sunday. My life is falling apart, but I'm coming to my life group. And when I make this, this confession that I'm bitter, I'm asking the church, hey, would you do what the church is supposed to do? Would you rally around me? Would you walk alongside me? Would you encourage me? Would you, would you give me help and, and counsel and support and love and mercy and correction? Because I need it. She's come to the right place. She's confessed where she's at. And she has sought help and restoration. Listen, Restoration Church, we are three years old. We've learned a lot about what it means to be a church. Three years ago, and I had no clue what we were doing. <laughs> I'm holding on to the handlebars, just trying to keep going. And it's been great. We've learned so much, and God has been so faithful to us. Listen, one of the things that just comes back to our DNA, to why we planted this church in the first place, is that we wanted to be a safe place where somebody could be honest with where they are. The fact that we are a group of people, we are imperfect people following after a perfect God. We are a group of ordinary people following after an extraordinary God. And I wanted to have a place where it doesn't matter what your background was. It doesn't matter if you're, you're black or white or brown or, or any other color. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your financial background is. That we can come to the same place. And if we could just be honest... That we would find love, acceptance, encouragement, support. We would be what the church is supposed to be. We're not necessarily slick. But my goal is that you find Restoration Church to be genuine. Full of people who are saying, I don't have it all together, but I'm following a God who has a purpose and has a plan of redemption in my life in your life, and in the life of this city and the world around us. And I hope you see that Restoration Church is a safe place where you can walk in and say, man, man, I'm bitter. Man, I'm struggling. Man, maybe I'm not bitter. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm an alcoholic. Man, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can't keep relationships in place. 
Maybe, maybe I've got this issue. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pornographer, whatever it is, that we can just be honest with each other and begin walking through life together, alongside each other, the way that God has designed the church to look. Listen, if you're a regular here, if you're a new person here, God, we need you. We need you right here as a part of this church to become the picture of what God has called us. The story finishes in verse 22. It says, Naomi returned, Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Did you hear what that was? That's hope. They came back at the beginning of the barley harvest. That Restoration Church is hope. The famine is gone, and God's providential kindness, his hand of of blessing has arrived. This is a whole new day in Israel, a whole new season. And it's probably a whole new day, a whole new season of life for Naomi and Ruth. We just have to continue by faith to see what God might do in our own lives, in our church, in our city. Would you pray with me? God, I just want to praise you for who you are. God, thank you for Restoration Church. Thank you for what you are doing right here. And God, as we can think back to, to three years of lives that have been transformed, to, to the baptisms we've seen, to the people we've seen whose lives have been transformed, some of us sitting in this room right here, right now. God, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you that, God, you are in this process of, of redeeming us, of bringing redemption. That, God, you are taking us as, as broken, imperfect people, and you are transforming us into your sons and daughters. That you have a purpose and a plan for us. So, God, I pray that you help us to, to have this 50-20 vision. That we can look in our life and we can see, man, we've got those hardships. We've got those things. But we can know that, God, you are sovereign. That you are in control. That you are good. And that you have purposes and redemptive purposes for good in our lives. And all these things we're dealing with, if we just by faith keep our eyes on you, that you will turn all things for good to those who love God, who are called according to your purpose. God, I pray for those of us in here when life hits us the hardest, that we'll make that important decision to turn back to God, to turn to God and to trust our lives with Him. Listen, I pray that we would have the honesty like, like Naomi, that we can walk in and just be real with who we are, with where we are. And I'm struggling. And I'm, I'm bitter. And I'm, I'm depressed. And I'm, I'm, I'm struggling through this in life. That we would be where the church is supposed to be. We say, man, I got you. I'll walk alongside this with you. Let me pray with you. Let me encourage you. Let me be there for you. Let's get through this together because that's the picture of the church. God, I'm so thankful to be a part of Restoration Church. God, for what you've done, for what you're continuing to do. God, I pray that you would continue to grow this church. God, that you would grow us deeper in love with you. That you would grow us wider in number. And that God, you would help us to be 
the picture of what the church is supposed to be. That we would be a group of diverse people from diverse walks of life who say we have the most important thing in common, and that's Jesus. And that's why we gather. Because we have a relationship with Jesus. And we want to be what God has called us to be. God, I pray that you would just be on every one of us in here today. God, for those that are in those moments of hardship, God, I pray that you would comfort them. Just help them to see what it is you're doing. God, for those that have other burdens today, God, I pray that you would meet them exactly where they are. God, we know that your spirit is here now resting on us. So God, I pray that you would do that work in our hearts right now, Jesus, in your holy and precious name. Amen.